0: Hey, guys, we're back for our question and answer time. So let's start with our Q&A. First question, which Old Testament book will you do next for the remedy? God being a God of order, why is there so much uh, junk, comets, and meteors in the solar system? So the first question is I I actually don't have a – uh, a, a book on my horizon to do at this point. Uh, just uh, wait for for an impression and leading, I guess. Uh, the the Holy Spirit has put on my heart to do the ones I've done, and I I just haven't felt uh, the conviction uh, to do an, another book yet. But we'll see. Uh, the the junk and comets and meteors in our solar system. I don't uh, really have a, an answer for that other than our solar system is part of the creation of Genesis, and our solar system is part of the the uh, the problem where sin is occurring and so uh, just like our earth, there's a lot of junk on our earth right now because we're out of harmony with God's design and God's full life giving glory is not really operating in our solar system like it did before sin. So when the Bible says we will see him face to face because we shall be like him, was it because Moses was like God that he was able to see him face to face? Well, it's an interesting question because there's one place he spoke to him face to face like a man Speaks to his friend. In another place, Moses says, Let me see your face. And God says, No one can see my face and live. So, face to face um, meant that God talked to him personally, directly. It didn't mean that he looked upon the face of God at that point because he wasn't yet fully restored into an immortal body that could tolerate the full. Um, presence of god, but you 're correct he was able to stand in god 's presence like no one else could uh, because he was closer to God in his uh, character development than the others at that time that 's why his face was radiating some of that life giving energy and he had to wear a veil over it regarding the first and second death. Would you agree that there are alive in the f- that we are alive in the first Adam and have genetically inherited mortal disease um, of sinful flesh through no fault of our own? Yet yeah, we're born in sin, conceived in iniquity, so all, all human life was, on earth was created in Adam and every human being is a descendant of Adam and we're born with a condition we didn't choose. So, yes, that, that part. If we accept Jesus and the the thoughts and intents of our heart are changed to trust and we hate what is bad in earnest, even if we falter and we love what is good and we collaborate with him, that actually isn't a question, uh, when, when we die the first death, we die under Adam in whom we – no, that's not true. So all who accepted Christ, according to uh, you know, Jesus, said those who believe in me, even though they die, they'll never die. They may sleep, but they uh, are not dying the death of sin. They are um, – uh, sleeping because their mortal body has worn out and they remain alive uh, in Christ and their individualities are safe and secure with Christ uh, and will be downloaded into a, a new heavenly body when Christ returns. During a Bible study with a friend on Matthew eighteen twenty one to 35 how can I refute his belief that God will not forgive us if we don't forgive others and that God turns us over to be tortured until we repent? Uh, Rather than refuting his belief, uh, what I would do is I would actually step back before I engage in a conversation with this belief and ask him, how do you understand God's law works? Uh, What your question suggests is that he probably is coming at it from a human law perspective. We have a rule. God said we must forgive. If we don't forgive, God is legally bound and he can't forgive us. And the only reason you get God's forgiveness is because uh, you have forgiven and you've got the checkbox marked. And if you don't, then God will be required to use his power to torture you because uh, you haven't repented and haven't forgiven. So uh, that is kind of the penal legal way that some people look at it. But if you come to the design law, this statement is actually quite true. Uh, if we don't forgive other people then that means we're retaining bitterness anger resentment hatred in our heart retaining bitterness anger and uh, resentment and hatred in our heart changes us and we become hardened in our heart and are and we are not open for the Holy Spirit to transform us or to bring God's forgiveness in God is still forgiving to us but we can't receive that forgiveness so we remain in a state of unforgiveness example on the cross Jesus for forgave those who were crucifying Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because Jesus would not allow the, the evil, sinful conduct and abuse of those tormentors to infect his heart. He was not going to become resentful and bitter and angry and hateful uh, and retaliatory. Uh, he was going to forgive because he wasn't going to let take root in his heart the ugliness of the mistreatment they were doing him. But his forgiveness did not result in those people being transformed by that even though they're forgiven by God they are still hateful and hard-hearted, and so they remain in a state of unforgiveness because their hearts were unchanged. And if we refuse to forgive others, we're hardening our hearts to the grace of God, and we're alienating ourselves and keeping ourselves out of God's grace, and so we will be tortured, and the torture comes from the unremedied sin. We're tortured with our bitterness, we're tortured with anger, we're tortured with the memories that we keep playing over and over again and keep reliving all the mistreatments that are happening to us. We're tortured with the distrust we see in everybody because we don't trust to be because we're so angry at the people who we've never been able to make pay. And so there is a torture of soul that comes to those who refuse to forgive. So on the one hand, the person is right. On the other hand, he's wrong in applying it as an, as an infliction from God who legally won't forgive and who will use power to torture. So I would move away from the trying to refute him to try helping him reinterpret what he believes uh, through the lens of God's design law. Also, a study guide says that um, We are to forgive and not seek vengeance because God says vengeance is his and he will avenge the wicked, okay? And if you um, avenge the wicked in the lake of fire. If you look in Isaiah chapter 1, you'll see that vengeance is the Lord's and what he takes vengeance upon is our sin and our defects to burn them out of us. In the same way that a doctor takes vengeance on uh, cancer or uh, pathogens In order to destroy, they will take a, a radiation knife and attack the cancer to burn it out, but they're not taking vengeance on the patient suffering with cancer. So God takes vengeance on sin to destroy it. The lake of fire at the end is the lake in which death and Hades are thrown. Well, what is it that will destroy death? You destroy death with life. So this lake of fire is the lake in which God's life-giving glory is burning and the righteous will live in it forever and it burns out all the defects. So it burns out all the lies, burns out all the selfishness, burns out all the causes of death and restores all who are in harmony to life. But those who've solidified their individualities in selfishness and falsehood will also be burned out by truth and love as they don't want to live in that place because truth and love torments them because they prefer lies and selfishness. Since God does not kill, please explain David and Goliath. Didn't God help with that kill? What about sending the angel to, uh, of death to, to, uh, to kill the children of Egypt and so forth? So, when you ha- understand questions like this, you have to use a biblical definition for terms and terminologies. There are two types of deaths described in scripture. There is what the Bible calls the first death, which God calls a sleep. And then there's the death, which is the wages of sin. And the day you eat, you will surely die that God warned Adam about. And the death that's the wages of sin is the death from which there's no resurrection. It's the second death, the eternal death. God has never put someone to eternal death. And God never is going to use his power to put someone to eternal death. That eternal death, the wages of sin, is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature, not from God, reap destruction. Sin severs the connection with the source of life. And when God stops using power to hold at bay what sin does, and that's what God's grace has been doing, God has been intervening to hold at bay what sin does. When he stops using that power, when he sets the sinners at inception Free, they are totally severed from him, the source of life, and they die. The Old Testament, what you're seeing, and there's many places the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, firstborn of, of Egypt, the core uh, of Dathan and Abiram, uh, the 185,000 Assyrians, and many others God put to sleep, and God will wake them up in the proper resurrection, and everyone will finish their own life and will die if they die as a result of unremitting sin in their life. So yes, God does not kill anyone, but sometimes he puts people to sleep or suspends them in time. Their thoughts cease at a point, and their thoughts will pick up right at that point when God turns the power back on. Is all sin equal in God's eyes? For example, um, why does the Bible say that homosexuality is an abomination, but not many other sins? Rather than me answering that question, I'm gonna read you a quotation uh, from the book Steps to Christ. Uh, which this author I happen to agree with on this description of some sins. This is at Aseps to Christ, page 30. God does not regard all sin as of equal magnitude. There are degrees of guilt in his estimation as well as that of man. But however trifling this or that wrong act may seem in the eyes of men, no sin is small in the sight of God. Man's judgment is partial and perfect, but God estimates all things as they really, really are. The drunkard is despised and is told that his sin will exclude him from heaven, while pride, selfishness, and covetousness too often go unrebuked. But these are sins that are especially offensive to God, for they are contrary to the benevolence of his character." To that unselfish love, which is the very atmosphere of, unfa- of the unfallen universe. He who falls into some of the grosser sins may feel a sense of his shame and poverty and his need of the grace of Christ, but pride feels no need, and so it closes the heart against Christ and the infinite blessing he came to give. So to, your answer, to answer your question, yes, there are some sins that are more offensive, and they're not the grosser sins, they're the sins of pride and arrogance and covetousness, which often feel no need and hardens the heart and moves a person beyond redemption. What is your view in regard to acupuncture? Uh, two years of chiropractory for back problems has not helped much and I'm not sure if the spirit of prophecy talks about a- acupuncture. My view of acupuncture is that it is uh, the data is very mixed. Many studies show that it's no better than placebo other studies show in certain situations and in, in very narrow applications there seem to be some benefit you'd have to do your research uh, The but, but then again let me just say this, placebo effects are very real. If a person believes they're taking a pain pill and they're getting a sugar pill, but they believe in that pain pill. The brain will re- release endorphins and enkephalins that, um, <clears throat> that um, uh, cause real physiological pain relief. And so that's a physiological change based on a belief. So I think the acupuncture will have more value to the person who truly believes in it than the person who's the skeptic. The skeptic is likely to get very little value from it. Can you explain, Matthew 16, 28, Assuredly, I say unto you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom. Surely there has not been anyone who's lived for 2,000 years. Did someone there get translated to heaven? Uh, Jesus said to um, Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Except he be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Uh, But then later... We're told in Scripture in two places that those who crucify Jesus will see the Son of Man coming in his glory, sitting upon the throne of God, sitting at the right hand of, of God. But Jesus said you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again, but then these people are going to see Jesus coming in his glory at the right hand of the Father. So what, what, what am I contrasting here? When Jesus says the kingdom of God, some tasting here so they see the kingdom of God, he, uh, Jesus also said that the kingdom of God is within you. He is not talking about the glory and the second coming. The wicked who crucified him, some of them will see him coming in the glory, but they will not see the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of love. And the kingdom of God was manifested at the cross where Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all into me. And he will bring glory to the father and and he will refute the lies of Satan. And the kingdom of God was manifest there at the cross. And so those standing around him, many of them saw the glory of God and the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of love manifested perfectly in Christ at the cross. The glorification of the glory of, uh, of that kingdom. The wicked will see, but when they see it, they will see a power monger who is coming to destroy them as Satan has alleged, and they will not actually see the kingdom of love even though they're seeing Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, and they won't see it because they have hardened themselves into the lie that God is like Satan has said he is. A visitor in our church confessed to the pastor's wife that she stole items from people at the church. The church voted not to allow her back into our fellowship. Later on, the pastor brought her back and encouraged her to apologize to the congregation, she refused to do to embarrassment. How should we handle this? I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to answer this or not. This is your church and it's your local church to handle. Uh, I, I I don't know. I don't know the players involved. I don't know the individual. I don't know enough background. I would have to understand who this person is, what her motives were, why she did the the theft, what her attitude is, uh, whether she's genuinely repentant. Um, Uh, So the attitude uh, would be, the goal here would be to seek and restore this woman to fellowship with Christ, to bring her to the point that she has a true conversion experience, and to bring reconciliation. But simple external confessions, simple um, restorations of things stolen alone doesn't necessarily mean that those events have happened in the heart. Uh, To be restored to fellowship, the person has to be trustworthy. So uh, if, you're, if the church is really invested in restoring this woman to true fellowship, then they need to have a conversation with her, need to be prayerful uh, uh, discussion with her, there needs to be an assessment of whether we think this person is genuine, and then there needs to be uh, opportunities to put her in places of responsibility uh, of small measures where if she uh, is not responsible, there is little injury to anyone involved and little loss to anyone in the church to give her opportunity to practice honesty, vi- fidelity, integrity, and to assess whether, in fact, her behaviors over time comport with her verbal uh, attestations and give her an opportunity to practice being trustworthy and restored to fellowship of trust. Was Jesus born with a sinful na- nature like the rest of us? No. Well, uh, Jesus was a unique being. He was not born with a sinful nature, he was born with the humanity. It was tempted, uh, capable of being tempted in the ways that were being being tempted, but he had no propensities uh, or anything that identified in him that longed to, to uh, sin. Would Mary being impregnated by the Holy Spirit uh, not by man give him an advantage? It would not give him an advantage over Adam. It would give him an advantage over us. Basically, you could uh, assume uh, or conceive of this as When Jesus was born as an infant, he was born in the state that a Christian is when they are reborn. So with the exception of we, when we're reborn and have new desires, we also have many years of habit patterns that are not healthy. Jesus didn't have any bad habit patterns in addition to having a hard attitude that loved God and loved others in a reborn state. So that's how he was born. But he did not have an advantage over Adam. Adam had no human nature that could be fatigued or tempt him. Jesus' human nature could tempt him and he was tempted with human feelings and anguish and even the feelings to to, uh, to anguish over his self-sacrifice that you see in Gethsemane when he had human emotions causing him to anguish and, and be tempted to not go through the cross. Adam had no such things. He didn't get fatigued, he didn't cry, uh, he didn't um, get hungry, he didn't uh, have to sleep, and these types of things. So Jesus did not come as the second Mary Magdalene or the second Tim Jennings. He came as the second Adam. And so it's a false comparison to pare- compare Jesus' uh, life to the life of every one of you and me, you need to compare it to Adam, and he came as the second Adam to be the the, and that's what the Bible says to be the second head or the new head of humanity. And that's what he did. What are your thoughts uh, if God had not given humanity a set apart seventh day at the end of creation week? Then we would have not had evidence of God's methodology and how he handles rebellion. The primary purpose of the Sabbath is evidentiary. It reveals God's methods. Uh, the first six days reveal God is powerful and God can create. The seventh day reveals the methods in which he uses power, truth presented in love, leaving people free, and the, re- the cessation or the stop in the use of his power. He steps back and provides opportunities for real consideration, real freedom of thought. Similarly, if Jesus had come to life, and, we would, and that's what the Sabbath reveals, and, and, and that's why it's so powerful. If Jesus had come back to life when his friends were preparing his body for burial and gone to heaven, uh, then instead of early on the first day of the week. Uh, what are my thoughts on that? My thoughts are his victory still would have been assured because the victory it was achieved. Resting on the Sabbath uh, was not. Uh, to provide some additional element of salvation benefit. The benefit of salvation was what he accomplished during his life and what he accomplished in Gethsemane and what he accomplished at the cross. All of that achieved the victory. And this is why he said at the cross, it is finished. He didn't say, it is nearly finished. Let me rest for 24 hours, and then it will be finished. That's not what he said. Resting the Sabbath did not provide additional benefit. What resting on the Sabbath did is it provide further opportunity for the intelligences throughout the universe to contemplate the significance of what he just achieved. And again, exactly what he did during Creation Week. He provided evidence, and he rested and stepped back, stay out of the picture, let people think. It's kind of like when you're having a discussion with somebody over a big decision. If you really want them to come to their own decision, you say, hey, I'm going to leave it with you. I'm going to go in the other room. You think about it. In fact, I'm going to go home. I'll come back tomorrow. You think about it. I don't want you to be pressured from me. And so Jesus resting in the Sabbath is basically telling the universe, you've seen all what I've done here. Take the time. Think about it. It adds to the, again, the evidence of what the Sabbath is about, demonstrating God's methodologies. Uh, If God never uses his power to coerce, can you explain his attack on Paul on the road to Damascus? Well, you know, the word attack is an an interpretation. So there are events and there are interpretations of events. Uh, God did not attack Paul. He confronted Paul with evidence that brought Paul conviction. If you actually see the outcome of what happened there, Paul was never coerced and he was never forced. God, Paul had certain assumptions and certain beliefs that were false and God provided at that moment evidence that refuted his assumptions and beliefs. Primary one that Jesus was not the Messiah and Jesus was still dead and buried somewhere in the body, and the body was stolen away by the apostles. And what that confrontation was a very strong evidence to Paul that he was believing a falsehood and that caused Paul to then step back and reflect and reprocess and paul went away for three and a half years to to really rethink all of these things before he became a useful apostle and evangelist for the lord but no paul was never coerced he was confronted with evidence that was overwhelming to him that really blew up his paradigm and uh and then he reprocessed and made changes how can we have a good relationship with a spouse who has difficult personality with his spouse while in the public he is so sweet So healthy relationships require healthy people. You cannot have a healthy relationship with a significantly dysfunctional and unhealthy person. Jesus' relationship with Judas ended in betrayal, ended in betrayal, not because Jesus was somehow deficient, didn't do enough, didn't try hard enough, uh, but because uh, Judas was dysfunctional and unhealthy. And so you can't have, so your, assess, your question, you have to assess, am I dealing with somebody who is like the rest of us and has problems but, but is is uh, introspective, is humble, is willing to accept their problems, is willing to apply themselves in constructive ways to, to mature and improve and, and overcome? Or am I dealing with somebody who lives in a state of narcissism and self-centeredness and denial and externalization and blame and refuses to actually improve upon themselves themselves and will never take responsibility for their own shortcomings. You have to assess who you're dealing with. If you're dealing with a person like that, you cannot have a healthy relationship with them. You can have a relationship, but it won't be healthy. And so then you have to step back and say, okay, well given who I'm dealing with, what are my responsibilities? My responsibilities are to carry out in governance of me what I understand to be the healthiest, most godlike, most Christ-like application of his principles and how I deal with this person, which will almost always result in speaking the truth and love and leaving the other person free to pout and whine and cry and blame. And you smile and you simply continue to allow them to think that if that's what they need to and you express that I understand that you need to blame me right now because you have a hard time accepting that you were the one who um, left the whatever, whatever, and uh, you continue to go down that path and they will either come to the point that they engage with you or they'll leave you. One of the two. Most of the time, people that are this dysfunctional will not stay in relationships with people who are graciously truthful to them and hold them accountable for their conduct. They only want to surround themselves with people who will feed back to them their own false self-image to make them feel good about themselves. All right, that's all our questions, and uh, we will, uh, let's just have a brief word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for the wisdom and the grace that you have given us. We ask that you will continue to guide us in our decision-making and how we seek to apply your principles in all the various circumstances of life, ultimately to advance your kingdom. We pray in your holy name, amen.